This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, August 8th of 2017, it's episode 115. In this episode, Adam Davis and Adam Johns join us to discuss Wheelhouse Workshop and therapeutic applications of role-playing games, plus replacing RPGs with board games, Electric City Comic Con, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Jenny. I'm Adam. And I'm Adam. And that won't get confusing at all. (laughs) (laughs) So we have Adam and Adam on with us this week, part of our ongoing series this summer on gaming and mental health. And you two are from Wheelhouse Workshop, which we have mentioned a number of times on the podcast in the past, but I'd love it if you two would introduce yourselves, Wheelhouse, and tell us a bit about the program. Sure, absolutely. So I'm Adam Johns. I have a master's in mental health counseling, marriage and family therapy, actually, from Antioch University, Seattle. And um, I started Wheelhouse Workshop with Adam Davis, who's right here. And I have a master's in education with a specialization in drama therapy. And Adam and I started Wheelhouse Workshop after we met in graduate school. We were both studying at Antioch University. And uh, we started Wheelhouse Workshop in 2013, but we actually started um, using tabletop role-playing games for with kids for a psychological growth and change a little bit earlier than that, around 2011. So Wheelhouse Workshop's focus is to use... Uh, role-playing games of um, of various kinds for uh, helping teens and kids overcome social challenges using using those games. So really focusing on the fun of the game as well as the the intentional use of the game to help therapeutically overcome a lot of the those challenges and help them become more confident and socially capable people. And we see kids with all kinds of different, uh, living with all kinds of different challenges from everything from mild social anxiety to difficulty making friends to high functioning autism. Um, A lot of kids with all kinds of different challenges come into the group. And then we use the, right now we use Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition in five weekly groups. And we help kids challenge themselves by using their character in the game so that they can um, experience the growth that they need to have in real life through their character. Awesome. Now... We've been kind of working with you on a few other little things here and there, been in communication with you a number of times over the past year or two, really. I know that you have a couple of cool things coming up. I can't talk about them here. You can't talk about them here. <laughs> but there's going to be a cool announcement coming. You want to plug that a little bit, kind of spread the word? So to the the extent that we can talk about it, that we're allowed to talk about it, there is a cool announcement that's coming up. We're actually going to be at Penny Arcade, the PAX Expo West, uh, September 1st, and we're doing a panel there, and we're actually going to be announcing this big new mysterious thing at our panel there. And if you follow us online or if you follow the the, um, website or the newsletter, any of those places will also be announcing it there. But what we can say is that it's an opportunity for us to take everything that we've learned in the last six years of running groups, of seeing kids, of getting to develop model and understanding of what therapeutic games really are, what RPGs can really do for people, and expand on that tremendously. And I am super excited, let me tell you. It's it's going to be really cool. Now, you said you're doing a panel at PAX East. Is that going to be uh, recorded by any chance? Uh, PAX West. And PAX West, sorry. It will be recorded. It will be... I guess we're going to put it up onto YouTube later on, uh, but we're getting some people who okay. are going to help us help us record that. And yeah, it won't be live, but we will be recording it and then putting it up on all of our various social media platforms afterwards. Yeah. 
Excellent. Well, as soon as I see that, I will make sure to share that out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I'll be sure to watch it as soon as he shares it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's great. Um, and so we have that panel we're doing together at, at uh, PAX West. It's going to be at noon on Friday, on, the, on September 1st. And then I'll be on another panel on Sunday, and that's about accessibility in tabletop games. Okay. I just have one little bit of news real quick, and that is that uh, this last weekend I was at Electric City Comic Con 2017, which I ha- really didn't talk about unlike previous years, which is an error on my part, and I apologize, but it went well. It seemed like a smaller crowd this year. Or perhaps it was better organized, but still really good. And I may have made a terrible and wonderful decision of picking up the Pokemon collectible card game starter kit for my five-year-old daughter. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, boy. (laughs) Has being friends with me taught you nothing about collectible card games, Grant? Has it taught you nothing? (laughs) It taught me to go for a cheaper one. (laughs) Is there really such a thing? Really? And is it Pokemon, Grant? (laughs) It's cheaper when I control what's being paid for it, yes. But one thing I do like about it, and I I don't want to spend too much time on this, but one thing I do like about it is that the local playgroups, the organized play, has a specific league for 10 and under that parents can help in. That's nice. Yeah, that's really helpful, and it seemed like a good thing that could, in a couple of years, once she gets, you know, to the point where she can actually hold a hand of cards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we had trouble with that when we were learning, but... Um, hands too once small. Once she gets to a point where she can... Hands too small, lack of focus, lack of just... I mean, she's five. What are you right. going to get, right? Like, she isn't actually five yet as of this recording. But in a couple of years, this could be, you know, a, a thing that she and I go out and kind of do together. And I'm, I'm very excited about that, and she loves Pokemon, so, hey, why not? I figure if I build her a Finnegan deck, she will be super happy. Let's just say that. Nice. Anyway, so that's kind of one thing I wanted to throw out there that is something that I will kind of be talking about probably in future episodes as we kind of learn things and do the whole parenting thing together. Uh, We'll see. Real quick, for those of you joining us, perhaps because you are fans of Wheelhouse Workshop or because you think the idea is cool or because you just happened to find us for the first time, uh, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, etc. And share us around on social media. That helps us quite a lot. And, of course, if you share this episode around, you're sharing information about Wheelhouse Workshop around, and that's also good. Maybe even better than sharing the show around. So, hey. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and roll up a Patreon question, answer this, and then really dig deep into this whole gaming therapy thing, shall we? Okay. This is a fun one. This is from uh, Francisco, who's uh, the host of Retro Rewind podcast. And he has sneakily managed to put two questions in one here. Good job. If you had to replace your favorite pen and paper RPG with a board game, what's the RPG and what's the board game? Like I said, he sneakily put two questions in Mm -hmm. here at once. What's your favorite RPG and what's the the board game that would replace it? My my problem, honestly, is picking my favorite pen and paper RPG. Yeah, that's where I'm getting stuck, too. Yeah. Yeah. Board game for me Um, is pretty easy. Okay, well, tell you what, let's start there, and then we'll think about what it replaces. Um, well, my favorite board game is definitely Nevermore, which not a lot, I, I don't, it's not a terribly popular card game, but it's sort of based, it's a card drafting game, so you're passing your hands around trying to get the cards that you need to make a good hand. And you're also trying not to become a raven, because when you become a raven, you can't win. One thing I really like about the game is that when you become a raven, you haven't lost and you aren't out of the game. Like, you just can't win, but you can still mess with other people. It's just sort of a change in role that limits you differently, but opens up other avenues. I I really like it for its versatility like that. 
Okay, so I'm thinking Dread then is kind of what this would replace, maybe. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking it would. And and Dread is amazing, and I do love Dread. Oh, yeah. So Oh, this would actually be a really good port. Like a really Yeah. There's not much setting to it, but apparently there's an expansion that came out recently that includes a bunch of um other characters from Edgar Allan Poe's work. Um so oh, nice. so if I can get that expansion and see how it plays, I mean that might be a good dread thing to do. Poe is very, very dark. It works really well with the idea that in a Dread game, if you go out too early, it's kind of boring to just sit around. So a lot of people will have your character turn in some way against the rest of the party. Yeah. And so you ca- you have that idea of, well, I can't help the group win, but I can sure help them lose. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for me, I think it's going to have to be Shadowrun. Like, it's not my favorite system, but I love the setting so much. I think it does qualify as my favorite pen and paper RPG despite itself. And, you know, if I'm going to pick up a board game to replace that with, I guess Netrunner. Hmm. I mean, yeah. if I want rules crunch and lots of money going out on expansions and splats, Netrunner works, right? All right, this is the world's most cheaterly answer, but this is very true. My favorite RPG is whatever I actually get to play with my friends, <laughs> particularly <laughs> my current gaming group. So if I can't play D&D 5e or Savage Worlds or whatever the the game is with you guys i want to do something that's going to allow us to sit around and play for a significant amount of time and joke and stuff so let's break out the commander decks i would still rather do the pen and paper rpgs but i might as well pick my favorite other tabletop game to do instead fair all right adam yeah if or I, adam well so it's it's kind of a tough question because in a lot of senses like i don't i don't think i could replace a as much as i absolutely love board games i don't think i could replace a tabletop rpg with with a board game, I just wouldn't get the the creativity and the chance to be, I don't know, I guess speaking voices and stuff like that. I mean, there's certainly <laughs> some board games I get right. to do that. But <laughs> um, probably my favorite board game of all time is Sentinels of the Multiverse. So if I was really going to like replace a, ta- a tabletop experience, um, I might be able to replace something like Mutants and Masterminds with Sentinels of the Multiverse and still get like my, my real epic superhero action on through sentinels which is really like one of the parts that i really love about that game fair and i the other adam i'm gonna be kind of boring and say that dungeons and dragons fifth edition just because i play it seven and a half hours a week um but <laughs> yeah. uh um i would if i had to replace it i would re- probably replace it with um either betrayal at house on the hill or shadow hunters both of which don't shadow require hunters. you Oh, Shadowhunters is amazing. That game. That's <laughs> um, such a good game. <laughs> neither of those games require you to speak in voices, just like Dungeons & Dragons doesn't technically require you to speak in voices. But when I play either of those games, I always make up a character for myself, and I always like am fully in character when I'm playing um, Betrayal at House on the Hill. I always like to be Professor Longfellow. And then, <laughs> good choice. <laughs> uh, I will always be Professor Longfellow, and I will say, what? What's in this room? I'm so excited. Say, oh, uh, I'll have to make an omen roll. How surprising. <laughs> Yeah, see, I'm always fast guy doing the pointy fingers. Yeah, it's it's bad. I was actually like, I used to play Trail of House on the Hill before we started Wheelhouse Workshop, and that was like a, a, a character voice that I have carried into Dungeons and Dragons game. This particular one, he's kind of an old man, and he's kind of a scientist, and he's there to answer your questions. Perfect. It's a little like Deckard Kane. 
It's, I, yeah, it does sound a little like Decker did. Yeah. I think everybody's old man voice is a little Deckard Cain. Deckard, like, Deckard yeah. Cain's yeah, like yeah. the epitome of old man voice. Yeah. <laughs> the platonic ideal of old right. man gravelly voices with information. The wise person, Deckard Cain. <laughs> exactly. In the Lazarus pit. <laughs> All right. Well, Francisco, I hope that helps. I think we mostly managed to answer your question there. Good good question. Send us another one. We're looking forward to it. And if you want to send us a question in as well, just uh, support us on Patreon if you aren't already. Just go to patreon.com slash saving the game to do that. It helps a lot. Hey, Francisco, I'm going to give you a real quick bonus thing um, to tack on to the end here. If I had to flip it and make an RPG out of a board game, I'd choose Pandemic. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that'd yeah. be cool. That would be fun. All right. Let's tackle our scripture here. Who wants to, to start us off? I'll take numbers. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Jenny. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) all right then. All right. Uh, So numbers 23 verse eight. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? And we have Mark chapter two, verses 15 and 17, which we're calling back to again here uh, from last episode for good reason. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this last one is 1 Peter 5, 6-10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So, of course, we're talking about therapeutic uses of role-playing games here. And the first question I have to ask is, we, we touched on this a little bit in the intro, but what sort of therapies and skills does Wheelhouse Workshop really focus on? In the email you sent, you talked about frustration, which is of particular interest to me as somebody who really struggles with that and has since a child. But what else do you work on? Well, obviously, our, our groups are oriented at social skill development, which is kind of a pretty broad area. Um, since we see clients that come in with everything from uh, ADHD and anxiety to high-functioning autism, we see a pretty wide range of challenges that come along with that. But we also see a lot of commonalities within it. And one of the things, like you mentioned, is, is working on frustration tolerance and flexibility. There are just a tremendous number of opportunities within role-playing games just by themselves for being able to increase your ability to handle challenges and difficulties that require you to be flexible and require you to sort of move with the moment and be be in the moment and be able to change your opinion or change what's going on for you right in that space. And what's really nice about role-playing games, any any game where you're rolling dice, is you're dealing with unpredictability. And in that, it is no longer you who made a mistake, it is the dice. 
And so if even if just like in real life, if you've done something a million times, it doesn't mean you're going to do it successfully the million and first time. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've tripped walking up the stairs, um, but it doesn't mean I give up on walking upstairs anymore. Um, and I, you know, I, I have to smile at myself when I trip falling up the stairs because uh, it's funny. Um, but in real life, you know, we make mistakes sometimes. And what's nice about the game is that it gives us an opportunity to make mistakes in that we roll sometimes high, we roll sometimes low, and that's just the way that life works. And so it's really nice to be able to um, use that game as a proxy for when you as your character try to do something that doesn't work, it doesn't necessarily mean it's your fault. The question is, what do you do? What do you do now when you trip, when you fall up the stairs? You, do you laugh about it? Do you have a terrible day the rest of your day because you made a mistake? As In the game, you don't have the choice to do that. In the game, when you make a mistake, you have to make the best of it. Um, and that's one of the things that we make sure to do as game masters with our kids is make sure to turn every every challenge into an opportunity so that when we when we have kids who think the door is closed, we help them realize that the, the window is also open. And I guess uh, maybe to, to be on point to the question, right, what else can we build with that? And I think the answer is a lot. Not only do we work on perspective taking skills and, and some of the classics, right, like creative problem solving skills or um, social communication skills and being able to interact with other players at the table, even when we're not playing the game. But I think that the game also opens up a lot of opportunities to to explore some deeper issues within yourself, too. Ideas around, you know, internal struggles that you have had or um, even on the on the outskirts of it, the opportunity to work through trauma. Um, which obviously is not something that that we want to outline lightly and should be should be done through the guidance of a therapist. But the game gives that opportunity for you to be able to dive into it. Now, I mean, you said you guys use Dungeons and Dragons for <laughs> all of your games. Is that right? Yeah, mostly for two reasons. One, for its recognizability. We get a lot of um, parents who've never really heard of tabletop role-playing games, so getting to say, like, well, have you heard of Dungeons & Dragons? It gives, like, a a starting point for them. Um, Gotcha. But then for the second one, that it provides a ease of access for us and that we can do, like, all pre-made characters and uh, have have some storylines that we can reuse for some of our groups, things like that. Okay, that makes sense. It also sounds, though, like success and failure as mechanics actually matter for the kind of therapy you're doing. Absolutely. It it definitely depends on the player, but it's really nice to have that built in so that we can choose how much challenge you want to give them. Because there are times that we don't roll dice at all. Um, We do a lot of just creative collaborative storytelling where we have the kids role play, uh, R-O-L-E play, um, what their character does. And it does not matter at all what their charisma score is. It does not matter at all what anything says on their character sheet. It's just about what they do at the table. So if we have someone who's working on on their self-advocacy skills or um, being empowered, then in their character has low charisma, we probably won't have them roll because we want them to practice what it looks like to be empowered and and have self-advocacy. So there are definitely times where we don't want to do that. Right. And real quick, define self-advocacy for me. So self-advocacy is where someone sticks up for themselves. It depends on the context. But when I talk about self-advocacy, I I want someone to be able to ask for what they want, uh, to stick to their values, to be honest with themselves and with other people. Um, oftentimes okay. we, we work on that skill with players that we have who come in who are really shy or who have a lot of t- trouble taking up space within the group. There, there are two sides to social challenges, right? One of them is, is I go along with whatever anybody else says because I'm afraid that sticking up for myself will cause conflict or I steadfastly demand my space regardless of what anybody else wants because uh, I don't know how to read into or understand the importance of making space for others. Okay. 
Let me ask you, is there anything else that tabletop gaming specifically brings as a therapeutic tool? Is there something else that makes you say this particular activity is really, really strong for X or Y? Well, so it's a broad question. Yeah, I know that's that's a lot to unpack. That's great, though. So um, my background, Adam Davis, is my background is in drama therapy, and I um, believe very firmly that we can learn a lot through stepping into someone else's shoes. And the opportunity that we have in this game is an opportunity to step into the shoes of a hero, to step in the shoes of someone who saves the world, who defeats evil, who is is powerful, and who people look at um, with respect and recognize. It's also uh, an opportunity for us sometimes to have experiences playing characters that don't do the right thing all the time. And I have had lots of players who also, um, as their characters, they make a lot of the same mistakes that they make in real life. And so it's an opportunity for them to reflect on the choices that they make as their character in a way that's probably not safe for them to make as themselves. For them to reflect as their character that their impulsive decision got them into trouble and that they actually, because of the way that they connect with their character, they felt guilty. They felt guilty about something their character did and it was, you know, against an NPC or against a, a made up town that, that has no actual consequence. But because they connected so much with their character, they could have some reciprocal benefits of both the successes of their character and the mistakes they make through their character. And so the, the, the potential there is really limitless. Um, we, we use it a lot, like Adam said earlier, for social skills and for building kids up and helping build their confidence and, and their ability to collaborate and have creative problem solving skills. But there's a lot to be said there too for really thinking critically about the choices we make and how to be the people that we want to be through our character. This, I know you guys have connected with the Bodana group a lot and Jack Birkenstock and I still have my bracelet from, from Save Against Fear and it's to think about what your character would do in these certain circumstances. And I've, I've used that a lot just in my own personal life as, as, uh, what would my character do in this moment empowers me to, to be the hero uh, and to, to do the right thing in moments that I, I might not otherwise have the strength and will to do. I'll also say one of the things that I really like about that question actually is that it really reflects upon, uh, the versatility of tabletop games. Uh, because there's sort of a reality to, we play Dungeons and Dragons as a tool for social skill development, but social skill development in itself is a small, small subset of therapy. And the reality is, is I think that this as a tool for therapeutic application is just as broad as uh, tabletop games themselves, where I can play a game where I'm in a classic, very Lord of the Rings-esque world, or I can play a game where there's no dungeon master at all, and all we are doing is um, making up a spacescape. And the variance between role-playing games is absolutely massive, and I think the application availability is also massive. Um, we don't use games for like um, helping veterans with PTSD, but that opportunity is totally there for somebody to be able to jump in, a, a, obviously a therapist to be able to jump in and, and start using that to help guide someone through their past experiences and, and guide through the trauma that they've experienced or, uh, or depression or much more extreme forms of anxiety than what we work with. Tons and tons of other challenges that are often helped along with therapy that could totally be um, reframed in a narrative way through, through one of these games. So to grab some uh, terminology that Dr. Bowman coined, this is one of those times where bleed is really, really helpful, mm -hmm. right? You can kind of grab that tendency of uh, emotional or mental stuff to kind of flow over the line between player and character in both directions and 
leverage that for therapeutic benefit? I would say that's a core principle to our work. So uh, what Sarah Bowman calls bleed and, and is a popular term within the LARP community is as a drama therapist, uh, the term is called aesthetic distance. And it's a term that came from, I believe it was an, a Russian novelist who was coined the term because he was standing on the edge of his ship in, I think, right around the time of Titanic. <laughs> and so he was standing on the edge of his ship and he was looking out into the distance and he saw some fog. And at that time, because of uh, the danger of traveling by ship, i.e. sinking, <laughs> hitting icebergs, um, the, the fog was dangerous, but it was so far away that he could look at the fog and admire its beauty. And if it was any closer to him, it would have been too confronting. And he said, this fog has an aesthetic distance. And it's a term that's used in uh, literary criticism, um, but it's term, a term deeply rooted in the drama therapy tradition, because the idea behind aesthetic distance is that there is a, a certain degree to which you relate to your character. At a distanced aesthetic distance, you're very cognitive, and I can see the external character and I have no emotional empathic connection to it. And then if you decrease the aesthetic distance all the way down to zero, then you are your character and you're experiencing your character's pain. You know your character's feelings because they're your feelings. And then in between those two is really where the distance is aesthetic, where it is still valuable. You can see your character as a, as a conscious, cognitive, external thing. And you can also feel deeply the, the emotions and the, the sort of... Um, uh, emotional content of that character. So we, we use that specifically and we, we can, we can manipulate that at will with players at our table because they are playing characters, but they're always sitting at a table. They're always sitting at a table in our office. They never actually do anything dangerous and they never actually do anything that risky, but because their characters do, we can push that on them or, or uh, vice versa. So, um, to kind of give an example of that early on in, in our games, we didn't know the, the intake, we didn't know the information about a lot of our players coming in. So we were running a group with, with 10 players, and we were going to have to split them into two different tables. And we had them co all come in, all their characters came into a classic like tavern scene, where they then had to um, interact with the tavern person whose name is Seamus, and, and they, they chatted with Seamus, and they got to order soup from mugs and things like that. And then they we went around the table and had everybody describe what they were doing. And then all of a sudden, skeletons burst from the floor and from the ceiling, and each player then had to describe what their character did to fend off those skeletons. And we had had those players place their weapons, their characters, place their weapons into a chest that magically sealed when they came in, because you can't, you can't carry weapons around this tavern. Just, that's ridiculous. So they all had to place their weapons in this magical chest, and as the skeletons burst out, they, they had to figure out what to do. So now they were attacking the skeletons with chairs or tables or um, punching them with their fists or whatever. And one player we came around to, and he said he held up his arms so he could see his forearms. And he said, I summon my weapons to me. And that player had designed his character with the idea that he had runic tattoos on the inside of his arms and he could activate them in order to summon a weapon to his, his weapons to his hands. And we said, that doesn't work. They're sealed in a magical chest. And then he got really angry. He clenched up his fists. His, his face turned red. He started to speak in short sentences. And he said, that if I can't summon my weapons to myself, then I, my whole character is pointless and I can't do anything about it. And Adam turned to him and he said, yeah, your character is really mad. What does he do now? And that's basically the idea of aesthetic distance, which is that um, he can now have some space. And he, we could see him unclench his fists, you know, cut the redness drained from his face. And he said, I rip off his arms and I beat him to death with his own arms. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's great. <laughs> awesome. <laughs>
but that opportunity was was the difference between him being so closely connected to his character that he couldn't see um, that he was not that character in that moment. And from him having just a little bit of space to recognize that his character can be angry and he doesn't have to be. Right. But also then he can reflect on, okay, now what do I do now that I'm angry? And we've used this. We've used this thing, um, this ability to, to, and you know, you could hear it in, in in Adam's voice the way he was describing it. So the the when a character is feeling upset and a player is feeling upset and they they identify mutually, the player says, "I'm upset. I can't do this," and and so on. And then the, as the game master, we can put it in third person. Your character is really mad. Your character struggled. Your character was not successful in trying to do that. But you, that you're the player sitting at this table in our office. What what advice would you give them? They're pretty frustrated right now. What would you have them do? Like, what, what happens to you when you get frustrated? How do you calm down? There's those kinds of things we can do um, where, you know, we I had an, another group come across spiders in a, in a dungeon crawl, classic dungeon crawl. And there's some big spiders and I had everybody roll a save against fear. And, you know, a critical fail happened. Then a character freaked out. Character jumped up on another character's back. Of course, the player is still sitting in the room and didn't has no problem with spiders. Um, but this gives us an opportunity to say, well, how does your character relate to fear? How does your character calm down when they're upset? And then I had the rest of the players also say what you know how they calm down, and then the player had to decide what their character needed to calm down, which in this case was relied on the wisdom of the group, and it also had that player choose whether or not their character was like them or different from them and it gave an opportunity for me to know as the game master to know how much they're identifying with their character so i can continue to give the right level of challenges and give the right level of support for their character to experience reciprocal rewards it's interesting that you're trying to put distance in in those moments as somebody who's um, who's just looking at it from the outside, it's like, you know, you have this very movie-like view of, of therapy, even for somebody like me who has been in therapy here and there. That idea of let's put the distance in rather than trying to capture that emotion, that's interesting to me. A little surprising. It absolutely depends on the player. So there are some players that they are over-distanced from their character. Their char- they have no relationship on an emotional level with their character, and our goal there is to make them embody their character so that they can have the, the reciprocal benefits and consequences of behaving like that character. But there are other players who we want them to be um, farther distanced. Okay. So we, we want to scaffold that and largely make that an opportunity for them to have sort of a challenge by choice on it. So as an example, if we had somebody and we said, your character has to now go stand in front of this entire army and rally them to, to fight off the undead horde that's coming their way. And they said, okay, well, my character goes up and gives a speech. Now, we could just have them roll dice, but we might push them a little and have them uh, embody their character a little bit more. And we say, oh, okay, what does your character say in their speech? And they might say, um, oh, well, um, go, go get them, guys. And maybe for that player, that's a big step. Maybe that for that player, that's, that's a huge accomplishment and an opportunity for them to feel successful in having challenged themselves. Or maybe it's not quite enough challenge yet. And so then I might say, you know what? Why don't you stand up and uh, speak in your character's voice and give me like a, a real speech, like speak in the gruff voice of your character. And then they might stand up and they might stand how their character would stand. And they might say like, um, today is the day that we fight for our freedom and our lives. And now I've given them a chance to 
to rally, to really be connected and be their character. And sometimes that's more what they need. So a lot of aesthetic distance is playing with that distance back and forth. Sometimes they need to be their character. And especially in order to feel the successes of their character, that's a hugely important piece. Okay. But sometimes they need to be able to recognize that their character can can be things without them in order to have that space to, to reflect on um, what is a good way to handle that or or to recognize that Maybe my frustrations don't have to be mine. They, maybe they can, I, my character can have that burden instead of myself. It sounds like it's very individualized then. There is no cookie cutter approach that you have. It's what does this person need and how do we meet those needs at the table? It's, Absolutely. It's very responsive and it's, it's very uh, relational. So we know all of our players really well. We, we tend to keep players for a long time. So at the very beginning, we do have kind of a, um, more like tutorial like dungeon we have new brand new players go through often where Mm. it sort of teaches them the game as we play because we think teaching rules can oftentimes be boring so we tend to hand a kid a character sheet based on a couple of questions we ask them and then we start playing right away we don't explain all of the numbers and words on a character sheet we don't have characters rolled with players it's very rarely fun on the first day uh, if you do that so we get started right away and so we do have kind of a a cookie cutter sort of dungeon, but the puzzles in that dungeon, they have equipotential or equifinality, which means that the, the puzzle doesn't necessarily have one solution and there's lots of different ways to get to the end of it. So we'll do things like one of our favorite ones that we've spoken about at length, but it's an absolute favorite. We use it all the time is the lever puzzle. So we have players go into a room in a dungeon and this is one of those dungeons that just has room after room after room. There's no choices. It's just a railroad, <laughs> um, but they're going in these in room after room and one of the rooms they get to When they step inside, uh, the door behind them closes. And then all they see in this stone room is a door across the way that has a portcullis, you know, the metal bars, with the spikes at the bottom across the way, blocking the door. And then in the center of this empty stone room is a large lever. And the players always pull the lever. Always. No matter what happens, there's a lever, they pull it. It's like a big red button, they just pull it. So what happens when they pull the lever is that they hear the sound of grinding gears behind the stone, and they hear this sound coming from all around them, kind of a stone-on-stone grinding sound. And then when they look up, they see that there are small spikes slowly descending from the ceiling. And then at that point, (laughs) yeah, there's like this moment, like maybe we shouldn't have done that, Um, which is a great learning, great learning opportunity. Maybe they should search things before they do that. So there's a little bit of tutorial there. But at that point, lover crunk is not always the best uh, advice. And in this moment, there's no solution that Adam and I have prepared in advance. There is a bajillion different ways to solve this puzzle because there is no solution to this puzzle. So we've had all kinds of different groups do various different things, everything from um, taking apart the lever um, and meddling with the gears to searching the stone walls for a trap door, you name it. We even had a group uh, uh, where the, I believe the the paladin picked up yeah, the, the... like the fighter picked up the dwarf and slam the dwarf into the portcullis until they could get the door to open, <laughs> which worked, which worked very well. Yeah. The dwarf consented. He was okay with it. Um, and like this, this is where we don't necessarily, or we, I guess we 
differ from a lot of game masters because a lot of puzzles are designed with a solution. There's a cipher or there's something like that. And in our puzzle, all you have to do is be creative. And oftentimes we'll say, well, the fourth solution to this will be the one that works. And really that's about not giving up when your first thing doesn't work. So we'll, we'll always give a little bit of information if they say, well, I want to pull the lever back. And you say, well, actually it looks like the lever's locked in place because of some gears right underneath it. And then they're like, well, I want to investigate the gears. And then we can kind of like guide them through a process. But it's a lot of yes ending if you're familiar with improv, oh, yeah. where we just build on their ideas and they're building on our ideas and before you know it, they're out of that room into their next room where there's another part of this sort of railroaded tutorial about how how Dungeons and Dragons or role playing games work. Hmm. The thing that's kind of interesting listening to all of this is a lot of what you do in kind of a therapeutic or educational context here seems to cut against what's considered to be general gaming best practices in a lot of ways. Tell me more. Grant and I went on an extensive rant a few episodes ago about forcing people who have spent points in social skills to role play it out instead of just rolling <laughs> like you know i have invested resources into this character character creation i don't want to role play this out i'm no good at this i just want to be able to roll and get on with the rest of the game without disrupting the plot or something that's not what I'm for the same for. reason i don't say i need you to role play out the combat i know you put all your points into it but i want to see <laughs> you role play it out yeah, let me see your fencing technique. <laughs> How do you swing a mace? Well, right. You know, this... can you really get your shield up in time? You know, yeah. this is kind of the difference between us and your normal gaming group too. Is that we are we we have a contract with our players and with their families for the kind of work that we do. Right. So there is a little bit of a different uh, a different contract there that enables us to push those those buttons a little bit more. Also, Adam and I talk in lots of characters, and so part of what we do is we're trying to introduce. The idea that we can play in an unstructured narrative social way in a way that's kind of developmentally appropriate for for kids. Yeah, just to be clear real quick here, that wasn't a criticism. It was oh, just no. an observation. No, no, but that, that's the reason why we get to do it, because I, you're totally right. In our, in our um, gaming group, when we play as friends, we don't do that. It's really part of the contract that we have with our players um, where we push them and they know that, we're, that they are, they're there to be pushed. The, the, the approach that we have to social skills is that a lot of the kids have lagging social skills. They don't have deficits necessarily. They just missed some steps along the way. So a lot of what we do is kind of harken back to like a, a, a playground where the kids can experience what it feels like to play, to just plain play. And so we want them to be... The nice thing about Dungeons and & Dragons and, and other kinds of role-playing games is that if you have um, somebody says like, I kill you. The person says, no, you didn't. I shot you. No, you missed. That's what happens on a playground. And, yeah, of course. Right. And yeah. games give us a nice way to to build in rules to help us manage that. But really what we kind of want them to do is get back into that playground space and learn how to navigate unstructured social time. So we're we're kind of taking the mechanics of the game and using them as a gateway towards unstructured narrative social play. So that's kind of why we encourage more role play in our groups is for that developmental reason. But Adam and I also play a lot of characters. So we kind of also want to welcome them into playing with us in that space. So there's kind of a, a relationship that's built that is part of the reason why we are inviting them into that kind of play. I'll also just sort of add in that 
we will totally have characters that are charismatic have an opportunity to roll dice. Sometimes that's that's easier when you're trying to get something done uh, or when you're trying to really move through the plot. There are totally times where um, being able to see that and, and have both the randomness of the dice roll as well as like the opportunity to view your character as being like suave or smooth talking and not have to necessarily have to role play that out. So those things totally come up within our games. It's really more of a matter of uh, where are the points at which we're trying to provide challenge to the player so that they can then find the opportunity to overcome that challenge. And for a character who's put a lot of points into charisma, another thing that we tend to do is we have them roll before we ask them to role play it. So that if someone who has a lot of points in charisma, they can roll it and then it'll, they'll get a 20 and we'll say, awesome. What does your character say? And then, you know, depending on the challenge level of the player, they can either role play it or they can say the words that their character says. But what that provides us also a really nice opportunity if they roll a four for us to say, all right, what is your character trying to say and what actually happens? And then it's fun to allow them to enjoy the mess up because that's one of our teaching points in our group is to let them enjoy what happens when you don't do well. Um, but also it lets you reflect on, well, here's what I was going for. Here's what like it looks like to be social and suave. But my character is doesn't do it social and suave this time, no matter how many points I put into it. I flubbed it. What happens, like, sometimes the players will get to make up something like, oh, there's a butterfly flying around and it landed on my nose and I get distracted. <laughs> um, or whatever it, whatever it might be. So it gives an opportunity for still, like, play, even though you do have points in social skills. Do you find that um, handing over direct narrative control like that is helpful a lot, or do you limit that? Um, so long as we give it within uh, within a context and within sort of a boundary, it's awesome. Actually, one of my favorite things to do to make combat interesting is to have people describe what they do in combat. I'm a fighter and I rolled a 20 to attack or something like that, and I was successful. And I say, um, awesome. How do you swing your sword? Uh, like st stand up kind of show me like is it like an overhead slash or like a sideways slash is it like a stab action just to get them an, an opportunity to like feel a little of the epicness of their character and their awesome attack there and so having the the sort of boundaries to let them create descriptions it's not going to impact my game you killed that orc and it's not going to change whether or not you decapitated him or or whether or not you, you ran him through or whatever so those things won't necessarily impact the world or how I'm going to DM it, but they give you a chance to feel like you're collaboratively creating some of that experience. And the the narrative control that we that we share with them is oftentimes not related to the plot, uh, at least initially, and then it'll come back to be related to the plot. So we'll do things like when the the characters are all as a party journeying, going going searching for something, we'll have them come into a town, and then Adam and I, as the game masters, have not made up anything about the town before they go into the town. We will um, pause the game, and I'll pull out my whiteboard, and we'll make up the town one letter at a time going around the circle kind of like an improv game and then we'll name the town and it'll be called Kitlixiv um, K-A-T-L-I-X-I-V because I love X's um, and V's and V's and hard to pronounce consonants <laughs> and uh, then, then we have a town and then I can ask I can have them help me make up stuff about the town it's not stuff that necessarily relates to the plot and if they try to make it related to the plot I'll probably <laughs> take it away um, if I said something like you're searching for the you know the information about the Lich King's ancient chalice or something Something. Right. What do you know about this town we go into? And they say, "Well, this is where the Lich King's ancient chalice is." I'll say, "No, it's not." But, um, <laughs> what else? And I can, I can, uh, you know, we can do stuff like everybody here um, in this particular town like wears a particular kind of outfit. What kind of outfit do they wear? 
Uh, they wear um, green green sleeves off it, the song Green Sleeves. They totally have green <laughs> sleeves. And you know, we'll go around the circle and, and say, like, well, they, they, this uh, this town is known for uh, for shipping something. They make something and they send it out across the world. What do they What do they make and send out? They actually make carts and it's, they ship them via carts. It's a, yeah. like a whole cart business right so then when we go into this town and they're looking for information to find some desert or something they're looking for some they're just going there to find a library um but when they're wandering around this town looking for information rolling all their information in investigation check checks etc they're also seeing people with green sleeves pushing carts around and that lets them feel like they they made something that the, the world is theirs and oftentimes with kids who have a lot of desire for power and control as is very natural in the in the teenage years when we give them partial control over creating the world it means that they get that need met and which makes the rest of the the experience a lot more rewarding and a lot more there's a lot less resistance to the rest of it because they got their need for power and control met through the way that's facilitated by us sounds almost like layering microscope on top of D. i have totally layered microscope on top of D. <laughs> yeah, i've totally done that. i've absolutely done that to make character backstory nice so we've kind of hit on this somewhat, but I, I was really curious going into this, what a typical wheelhouse workshop tabletop session looks like from start to finish. And I guess before that, we need to kind of ask, is there a sign up process or a initial evaluation process before we join a group? Uh, yes. Okay. So we do we do a um, we always do a phone call with a parent before any client ever joins our group um, to get an idea for a bunch of stuff, both their particular areas of challenge, uh, the goals that the parent might have for them, as well as also getting an idea for what kind of games and what kind of gamer are they. Um, maybe they've never played games before. Maybe they're a long time D&D player, whatever the case may be. We want to know kind of where they're coming, what what set of knowledge and skills they're coming in with. Okay, makes um, sense. And then often parents will sometimes request for us to, to connect with a teacher or connect with a therapist as well to, to get even more information about that client as they're getting started or as they're um, as they're even sometimes when we're when they've been a client for a long, long time, just to keep keep up the communication between them. One quick question about that. Do you find that most of your clients are the children of gaming parents? You know, surprisingly, it's maybe like 50 50. Hmm. Originally, we assumed that we were going to be getting a lot of gaming parents that would be coming in. But we find that a lot of our parents are just looking for they recognize that their kids are interested in these kinds of things and in games and of all kinds. And then they find our group and they, they know, oh, this is going to be a fun experience for my kid. And so they want to get them into that knowing that it's social and fun, knowing vir virtually nothing about role-playing games. And so they really kind of come to you knowing, hey, this is going to be a D&D &D therapy. This is not, I'm looking for therapy. D&D? &D? What is this? <laughs> Got it. By the time they come to us, normally they've explored our website, which has lots of information about the kind of work that we do uh, in press and stuff about what we do in our groups. So oftentimes parents are informed loosely. So a first step is a parent gets referred to us by a therapist or counselor, or they've seen press or something like that. We do a lot of Facebook sharing and posting. So sometimes parents will see other parents posting about it. And then they always email us. And then we schedule a phone call where we talk about the particular needs. And then a brand new player will come to a group as a sort of a trial session. They join, they join a running group where they start the quarter with us. And then after that group, we check in with the parents, see how, what the kid felt about it, see what parent thought about it, and then we would uh, enroll them in the group after that. But every particular session, 
Uh, so we run in, in 10 session quarters. We run kind of like a season, like a TV season where, uh, there's a sort of an arc every 10 sessions, but it's a continuing storyline on top of it. Yeah. Um, but every session we start off with check in question and we end with a checkout so that our sessions have a container on them. We don't end the game as we're walking out the door or anything because that's not good for, for the game and it's not good for therapy either. So we start off with a, a check-in question that where we go around the circle and we have all the players answer a question. And at the beginning, the questions are kind of like uh, very simple questions like, what's your favorite dessert? And then there's always a bonus question, which is, what is your character's favorite dessert? And so we will um, give them an opportunity to share something that's small and not that personal about themselves and also get to make up a tiny little bit of backstory about their character. And then we, as the, as the game masters, get to see how much they are deciding is true about them and their character, how much of that is, uh, is equal. And then it also lets them be a little bit creative and have some, some safety and making up things. Like my favorite dessert is ice cream, but my, my character, Gragnol, the, the dwarf barbarian, his favorite dessert is like chocolate covered bugs. And then we're like, Oh, chocolate covered bugs. So we can like validate their, their response and say, well, where did he first have chocolate covered bugs? And then we can like help them make up their, their little backstory, which then, helps freshen up their character and also it's something that the other players at the table now get to like use at the table to say like oh scragnold eating chocolate covered bugs again gross um, <laughs> and it's fun um and then you know over the course of the quarter sometimes our check-in questions will become more personal as the characters and the players have become um, more comfortable so we'll ask for things like um what is something that your character is struggling with and what advice would you give them so now we're we're deeper into the reflective practice of how to think about this gaming experience as beneficial. So they can say stuff like, well, Gragnold is super impulsive. Um, he really struggles because he makes lots of mistakes and doesn't think about things before he does it. And then what advice would you give him? Well, I would tell him, like, think about what I do. I would tell him to like make plans before I do things and listen to other people. And that's always advice that they also could use. So it's really useful for them to reflect on the wisdom of that advice. And then at the end of every session, we always ask checkout questions where we ask them to choose something that someone else did that was awesome. So it's a highlight on somebody else. And that's useful for them to rem remember that it's a team-based game and that there's always things that other people are doing that is essential for the, for the group to be successful. So there's always that at the end of every session. We always also always ask for them to uh, say something that was challenging or that wasn't what they wanted. And that's useful for them to reflect openly about the challenges of rolling low or the challenges of, of a, a puzzle they didn't like or something like that. And it's also useful for us as the game masters to know they don't like werewolves or whatever whatever we put into the game and then the third thing we ask them at, during the checkout is to make a prediction for the next session and that's useful because the prediction lets us do a little bit of goal setting so they can we'll know what they're hoping for the next time and we'll know what sort of goals they have for their party but also it's useful for us to kind of chum and <laughs> and uh um come up with some ideas so like oh man you know what i predict next time I predict next time that like the guy who was running the the tavern, I bet he's evil. I bet he's part of the evil organization. And I'm like, nah, I didn't think about that. That's, <laughs> that's a great idea. And then when I inevitably some of the best GMing ideas come yeah, from collaborative players. story building. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so like when that way when he turns evil, they're like, I knew it. I knew you. I said it. You guys heard me. I said he was evil. I knew he was evil. Like, yeah. And you're like, yes, he wasn't evil until you said something. <laughs> you are nice. very intuitive. You, you literally made it through. Good job. <laughs> very cool. Now, how long is a session? 
Uh, we run for an hour and a half, which is, I know, short for most uh, like RPG games, especially because we also have the check-in and check-out at the start and end. Uh, what we found, actually, when we originally started We Hall's Workshop, we started doing it for, we, we ran the sessions at two hours, and we found that the, the last half an hour was always kind of a bit of a dragging, dragging your feet for a lot of our players. So I, I think this is more a, um, a kids and teenager thing um, that for an, an adult game, having a longer game might be more beneficial. Mm-hmm. One thing that's really essential for the, for the model is that it's fun and that it stays fun. I mean, sometimes we challenge players with personal work and sometimes games are inevitably challenging because of dice rolls and all kinds of stuff. But it's really important that the games are, are structured in such a way that the, the players want to come back. Cause that's really what makes this kind of hearkening back to a previous question about what makes this, what makes this kind of therapy special is that kids want to come. That a lot of kids don't want to go to therapy because they've been in therapy and it's boring. They just sit and somebody nods their head while they talk. And this one, they get to interact and it's fun. So we always want to make sure that the end of the session is still fun because people always remember the last thing they felt at the end, even if it was... 90 minutes of fun and 30 minutes of like, well, I'm kind of tired and I wish I was at home. They're going to think of the whole thing as I'm kind of tired and I wish I was at home. So we learned kind of the hard way at the very beginning that it's much better to have it short if it's fun than long if the last part's going to be challenging. Okay. Always leave them wanting more. Exactly. A couple other questions for you. In a lot of games, GMs assign homework. Come up with this thing between sessions or tell me what you're going to be doing over the next couple of days. Come up with a plan for next session and we'll implement it. Uh, I have a GM in a game I'm running right now who asks for surprising amounts of character input and we kind of end up role playing by email between sessions. Is there anything you guys do between sessions or you do do you need to keep it all contained to these planned sessions? We have attempted to do some homework with clients, uh, with some of our players in the past, with not a great level of success for them for their follow through. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. One thing that um, does come up because so I'm I'm a marriage and family therapist, and some of our clients I actually see in individual sessions as well as in our group sessions. And in those cases, we do spend time reflecting on their character or reflecting on uh, what happened in that last game um, or how they can how they can improve, how they can continue to work and do better. Sometimes some very explicit reflection and and understanding of what's what's going on for them within. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a resource you have. It it makes sense. But I didn't know if there was a an ongoing engagement through the week or if you just sort of let things settle and process and then come back in the next week. Mostly that second one. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, other question for you. Do you have any house rules that you establish for the game beforehand? Obviously, you know, we talked before about, well, in this case, I'm not going to have you roll. We're going to improv You know, changing the game on the fly a little bit. But are there standing house rules that you establish ahead of time? Well, so Adam actually has a couple of dice rules that he he has for his table. For instance, no dice stacking. (laughs) Uh, Our office is actually (laughs) uh, a big concrete box uh, with concrete floors. And so if you drop dice, they fly everywhere. (laughs) And then we spend a long time looking for dice. In an hour and a half, I could see how that would chew up time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as far as far as yeah. the game itself goes, we also have um, a few rules that we sometimes have to explicitly lay out for players. We don't always specify this like right off the bat because we don't know if the player is is just going to follow by these by themselves. Um, but we our games are always good. Uh, we don't play an evil campaign. That's mostly because it's kids and because it's social skills oriented. Our, our groups range all the way from as young as nine all the way up to our oldest player. I think is twenty four. 
I actually ran a, a campaign for some older players that were 18 and 19 and 20, and they they did some questionable moral things in their in their games because for them it was an opportunity to explore to explore what it is to to be moral and have to make moral decisions and have to live with consequences to um to some of those difficult decisions but for the most part most of our games are explicitly they are good campaigns and all the players are working together and that's an important point because in a social skills group it will inevitably happen that somebody will say like i stab you Uh, (laughs) You insulted me at the table, not having anything to do with the game. My character stabs you. And we have to make it very, very clear. The player characters cannot attack each other. They are on a team and they are heroes. And therefore, they have to act that role of being on a team and heroes. Yeah, they also can't just kill NPCs also. Sometimes uh, sometimes they really want to, especially if I'm playing the NPC. Um, and I'm, I'm playing the guard in town or whatever it is. And the guard's goal is to just give them information. But uh, when, when you've got social skills challenges sometimes your your strategies when you're dealing with with npcs are to threaten uh, and to demand those are the only two skills in your in your toolbox and so um i will have to say sometimes like well remember you guys are heroes so like threatening to flay him alive um probably not what your character is going to do um like roll an intimidation check we can see like what you might how you might stand and like state very clearly what you want but like let's let's play with some other strategies here so we we do have a little bit of um you have to be good and i you know we've bent all every rule that we have we bend so i i had a player who um totally just killed a guard without really realizing that he wasn't particularly uh, a bad guy just a guard who was you know doing what he needed to do, just a, a working man. And uh, the player just said, well, I'm going to cast inflict wounds on him. Just totally dropped him. And I, in that moment, took his spells away. And I said, well, you know, in the game, your your character is good. And the way you can cast your spells is because you are a good character. But now you have made such a grave mistake. You can no longer cast spells until you prove that you have atoned for your mistakes, for the for the the life that you took. And so this character had to go on a, on a whole journey of, of restitution to make up for the fact that they had made this grave mistake, that, that the power went to their head and they, they thought they could just go around using their spells at will. I like created a whole situation where this person who had done this thing, who had broken the table rule of being a hero, had to eventually become a hero. And there was a, you know, universe ending calamity where someone had to walk into fire and pull a lever or something. And he was the one who went in and and did the thing and sacrificed himself in order to save the universe. And of course, like there was an intervention and he survived because he did a good thing. So his god, his god intervened, and yeah, in and it was the right lever, D&D. and he pulled the, the right lever. lever. That this was the correct lever. Did not have spikes. We have lots of levers in our games. So. <laughs> many, many have spikes. <laughs> um, yeah, there's lots of spikes. Um, the yeah. So those are the those are the table rules. I've also done other things depending on the needs of the group. Where sure, when I've had groups that um really struggle being focused, there's a lot of ADHD present at the table. I've done things like I have um had like token economy. Where if we stay on task, I'll keep track of how many interruptions we have. And if we have less than a certain number of interruptions by the end of the day, if we continue to beat our record of interruptions, then I will put a token in a box. And if we fill up the box full of tokens, everybody gets a magic item. So sometimes I'll be very behavioral and very like overt with the way that I'm teaching and structuring those kinds of things using rules that are built into the game. Sometimes there's inspiration tokens in, in D&D 5e that I'll, I'll give out for, wow, you guys are really uh, working together well here's an inspiration token you can only use on somebody else 
So you can't re-roll your own roll. You can only use this inspiration token for, for somebody else to help somebody else be awesome. So those kinds of things. And oftentimes if, if a player uses an inspiration token, uh, which in Dungeons and Dragons 5e lets you somebody else, lets somebody re-roll, uh, 20 sided dice. What I'll do is I'll say how they like inspire another character with their inspiration token. So if, if, describe it. Yeah. So like if, if Adam's character, uh, totally misses with his sword against a, a bad guy and then another player wants to, use an inspiration token i'll say what does your character say seeing adam i seeing adam's character nearly miss what does he say and he says something like you got this gragnold and then like all right adam roll again and then so there's there's a little bit of, of house rule that way too where we when when we use inspiration tokens we always try to frame it in a in a positive and pro-social way do you occasionally hand out like you know advantage on that second roll since we're talking about 5e here. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, an inspiration token is sort of advantage on its own. Uh, I definitely have, I have been guilty as a dungeon master of occasionally getting people to roll when maybe I should make them successful or, or fail with, without rolling. That's a common trap. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've totally had times where I, where, where like the, the player says, like, I reach down and I pull my teammate out of the burning pit and the very last second as his rope snaps. And I go, awesome, roll a dexterity save. <sighs> and then he rolls a four and I go, well, I mean, you're feeling like really strong about this, so roll, roll it with advantage. And then he rolls another four and a five. And then I go, yeah, you know what? You, that was good enough. You were, you were really slow, but he seemed to be falling in slow motion. You totally got him. <laughs> Just because it's, it's such a great like epic moment and the, the choice there is uh, not a great choice, which is, uh, well, you uh, you swung yeah. too slowly, I guess. And even though you really wanted to save your teammate, he died in a burning pit of death. Uh, but good, good attempt. Yeah, see, in, in that case, I th- I think I'd almost be like, "All right, you save him. Uh, <laughs> take two d six fire damage from the flames, you know, rushing up as you yank him out of there." Yeah, and you I'll, I'll <laughs> right. You have to come up with another reason for why you weren't successful. <laughs> you, were, you weren't successful <laughs> yeah, because you took some. What extra other fire consequence other than failure you get out right. of that bad roll? Yeah. Exactly. Which, to be honest, isn't a terrible GMing skill to build up, anyways. So yeah, no, you know, maybe it's a little useful for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, there's something you threw in there in passing, which is talking about, oh, you know, here's this character and this character's god. You know, I'm assuming this was a cleric of some sort or paladin or the like, whose god took those spells away. How much does religion come up at the table, and is that something you? talk about or is it just kind of a little bit of fantasy flavor for the setting um i think it's more a fantasy flavor for the setting okay. actually D has a lot of challenges on that level because we really don't want to alienate any player for either having strong uh religious views within their own life or not having strong religious sure. views and that would might prevent them from playing a character like a cleric and D is a, a weird world because it's it's you know this multi-pantheon of of gods and um mostly we want to give the opportunity that in the D world i view it as as the gods are just sort of powerful beings that have given this opportunity to bestow power on on these other creatures and so the gods in D are like someone you can very much meet or might show up and like knock on your door and you know be be a part of your campaign so uh, often we, we will encourage the opportunity for the player to come up with who is their god? We, we once had a player whose uh, god in the game was uh, Walt Disney. Uh, he had made a warlock with where he had made a pact with Walt Disney. 
Um, and that was sort of his, his like ridiculous way. And we made, we made, uh, lots of references. He actually hated it because we made so many references to like, um, Mickey Mouse voices and, oh, <laughs> and things like that. A choice he soon, uh, regretted. I get you. Exactly. <laughs> But for the most part, we, we want to make it more about the fun and interesting background of your character than than to um, create a space where anybody at the table is going to feel alienated. Sure. No, it makes perfect sense. I was just, I'm curious how much that comes up or, you know, if you get pushback from parents or anything like that. We did, we did have um, a very early on um, player was, was nervous initially because of his Catholic background and um, was nervous about the amount of... Uh, gods and stuff in our game and and so we definitely will steer sometimes away from things like in the in the in the dungeons and dragons fifth edition books it there are very clear rules for devils and demons and things like that that have very elaborate and clear worlds that are interesting and compelling as as uh, archetypes to play with right um so we have definitely steered away from those kinds of things i think like i had a storyline where the players basically went into what in the Dungeons and Dragons books is called the Nine Hells. Yep. Mm. And I changed it to like the underworld or something like that to make it less seem like a, an, an overt sort of Christian reference. Sure. Um, just because the, the interesting part of traveling to that dimension is the fact that everything is ordered and structured and there's law and, and all, all of the characters in this world have ranks. And so it's an interesting world to play in, um, but I didn't need the, the imagery and the reference points for anything because it wasn't really important. It wasn't about that. It was just about the other elements of the world. So we definitely steer away from, from some of those things out of sort of a sensitivity toward the fact that it really doesn't matter, except for it will sometimes make some people feel uncomfortable. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, that's perfectly reasonable. It's just, it's one of those things that I'm always curious about, you know, when somebody's putting gaming in general and D&D out in particular in a very public way, even, you know, 30 years later, I mean, the, the reason we started this podcast was in some ways to respond to those old criticisms and those old worries and be like, it's fine. Everybody chill. It's it's fine. Yeah, in fact, yeah, it's a good yeah. thing. <laughs> but they're still present in the, the zeitgeist to a certain degree. And so I'm always curious how that manifests. Yeah, old memes die hard. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's totally true. Yeah, we, we haven't actually seen it um, very overtly. Most of the time, by the time a parent will contact us, they've already done enough research and they know enough about us. So we, we if that is if the idea is pushing people away initially, it's not something we notice. Right, a little bit of self-filtering. Yeah, absolutely. And only once have we ever seen anybody actually mention it to us, to our face. And that was when we were at a, at a, a homeschool convention and we were there, you know, with a table at a big convention. And um, there was a, one woman who said, what you what you got here sounds really interesting. But I had a friend in the 80s who was lured into Satanism with Dungeons and Dragons. Hilariously, right after that, she said, and I don't know you from Adam. And uh, both of us were wearing name tags that said Adam. <laughs> which was, which was nice. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only time that we've ever had anybody overtly say, make any reference points to the sort of satanic panic of the 80s with relationship to, to Dungeons and Dragons or anything like that. Okay. So that's good. But I do think, I do think that you're right. And I think it's still, I think it still really exists in the zeitgeist. And I think it's still um, a concern for uh, a lot of parents. And largely, we tend to face that with a sort of um, encouraging optimism or encouraging enthusiasm to give an opportunity to say, let me tell you all about this game and let me give you a, an opportunity to see what it's like um, or, or to describe it to you so that you can you can have an idea for, for all the good that it that it can provide and how it's really just about imagination. and It's about having fun at, at a table while you're telling stories. 
Here's a, a one last question for you, because we're running a little long here, and I know you guys have kind of wrapped up your day and would probably like to go home and eat. Um, <laughs> but I do have one last question for you. If you were to add another game to your repertoire that was not Dungeons & Dragons, what game would that be? Um, I'm assuming another RPG, because there are lots of tabletop games sure. that would also add to it, but, <laughs> but that, that would at least limit us a little. For me, man, maybe it's just because I love the the like lord of the rings fantasy magic setting but i would add dungeon world uh which is actually like really similar to dungeons and dragons all right so you heard it here uh, folks I, two guests in two weeks both preaching dungeon world uh, it's it's great i mean one of the things yeah. i love about dungeon world is that it has mechanics that really build on storytelling as opposed to like um fighting against it right and so it's uh, the the game is really about like you roll your dice and then and you, your your story descriptions are a huge part of what exactly is going on in in your thing, rather than having like a, you know, an attack roll. I'm I am gonna create a story description for what my character does, and then that falls into some categories, one of which might be attacking. So I, it's super super fun to play. I still haven't played Dungeon World. I'm really excited. I know. I, know. I, I really keep, want to play. I keep inviting Adam into guest to guest in my, in my <laughs> yeah. Dungeon World. Yeah, that's you should. Yeah. I'll tell you if you like the the Lord of the Rings style stuff, I can recommend Fellowship as well. I'm in a Fellowship campaign. It's a powered by the apocalypse game designed to get that Fellowship of the Ring vibe where you're all members of different races on a journey to defeat an overlord and one of your moves is you are the sole arbiter of all the facts about your race. Tell us about them. Ooh, <laughs> cool! That's so great. strongly recommended. Good game. <laughs> I am I'm torn because I really like uh, the ability of superheroes to sort of be a, a reservoir of metaphor. So I really like the idea of getting into something like masks or um, even some of the fate or cortex things with with superheroes. I love the idea of bringing superheroes in because they're so evocative. Um, but I think if I had to answer this question with one game, I think I would choose The Strange. Uh, I've never heard of that one. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, is a is a Monty yeah. Cook game games game that's basically sliders. If you're familiar with the '90s hit '90s show Sliders, um, <laughs> where you um, the the protagonists travel from one dimension to another, um, sort of quantum leap style, except for they they stay themselves as they journey from from strange universe to strange universe. And so, um, what's cool about it, and and I. We played it at a, at a PAX. We just met, played with one of their game masters and instantly bought one of the books. But the, the idea is that when you're traveling from dimension to dimension, your character actually translates and becomes a, like a, a different version of themselves. So actually, I, I pulled some of the stuff from The Strange and, and played a version of it, like a D&D The Strange sort of crossover where I, I had players go, going into lots of different portals. And when they went into portals, they became like that dimension's version of themselves. So there's a really cool opportunity there for, for all kinds of uh, interesting, like, well, if your character came from a fire dimension, what would they look like? And then in the fire dimension, instead of a pit of lava, it's a pit of water. It's terrible and scary. And gosh, nobody fall in the water. Um, and uh, um, what I did is I actually like we translated everybody into the Star Wars dimension. And the, the strange totally gives you all of the tools to just if you want to play in a Sherlock Holmes setting and then they travel through Sherlock Holmes dimension and then go through another translation through another portal. And now you're in Hogwarts. It's really a, a fun, like neat opportunity to do whatever you want to. And, and your character translates and they have this cool thing where your, your character sheet like folds in half and you put another sheet over your character sheet, which then has your new inventory and your new description based on the dimension that you're in. So it's super cool. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. 
I'm looking it up right now, and I see <laughs> I see that there there is an official crossover with Numenera. So I'm hooked. I'm I'm in. I'm down. I'm up for this. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Also, our uh, sister awesome. podcast over at Game Store Profits, uh, one of the hosts there through Inroads Ministries runs a strange RPG online. Oh. And uh, oh, awesome. those sessions are available publicly. I may have to find that and link it. Peter, Jenny, any other questions we want to follow up on real quick? Probably a thousand, but nothing we have time yeah, for. Yeah, like that's what, <laughs> what do we have time for. Pretty much nothing. Well, Adam Davis, Adam Johns, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Uh, if people want to find out about you, whether they're in the Seattle area or not, to apply as clients, or whether they're just interested in your work, where can they go to find that? So you can find us online at wheelhouseworkshop.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at at WheelhouseWS. Is that right, Adam? Um, and you can also email us at contact at wheelhouseworkshop.com. Right. And we we absolutely love hearing uh, stories of people who, you know, role-playing games that have been meaningful to them or people who are uh, from anywhere. If you're interested in services, that's awesome. But even if you just want to get in contact and say, hey, this is meaningful to me, uh, we love hearing about that, too. And if you are a therapist or a teacher, we also actually do consultations. So we can help people get their own gaming practice started uh, in a therapy setting. We've done some um, consultations over Skype, which has been really great to help other people start using role-playing games in their own practices to help kids. And that's uh, wheelhouse-workshop.com, right? Either of them works. Oh, really? Okay. It works with or without the dash now. Yeah, we were stuck with the hyphenated one for a long time because somebody was squatting on wheelhouseworkshop.com, and then they finally emailed us and said, do you want to buy this for $5,000? And we said, no. And then they let it expire, so we got it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, awesome. Thank you again for joining us. This has been really informative. I know we've gotten a lot out of it. I know our listeners will get a lot out of it. Thank you so much. This has been Mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on. Of course. And, uh, I look forward to hearing what comes out of this uh, this PAX West session. I'm excited about that. Uh, we're going to stay tuned, and hopefully once we hear something, we'll spread the news to our listeners, too. Awesome. awesome. That sounds great. Thank you, folks. Have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See ya. See you later, folks. Bye. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license, Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilore.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.